Happy Palm Sunday, everyone, and glad you're here. In just a moment, we're going to take uh, the Lord's table together. And so if you did not receive uh, these elements as you came in the door, would you just raise up your hand and leave it up and someone will bring it to you, okay? So just keep your hand up and then somebody will bring it to you. If you also, if you'll take your Bible, go ahead and open it up with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles 28 is where we're going to be uh, landing uh, this morning. You know, there's a phrase that's often used in, in places that have a monarchy, and the phrase is this, the king is dead, long live the king. Now, it sounds kind of like a, a contradictory statement, right? The king is dead, how can the king live long? But it's really about succession. When one king dies, immediately the next king is now installed. I think this first phrase actually took place in Charles VI of France, 1422. We've seen this phrase used over and over in other monarchies, in Denmark, in Thailand, and of course in the United Kingdom. But when one king dies, another is installed is exactly what we're going to be seeing happening in 1 Chronicles 28. We've been studying the life of David, and now we've come to the end of David's life, and we're going to see the succession and the installation of an emerging new king. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, there is a promise embedded in the passage we're about to read that directly impacts you and me today. Now, let me just say, I'm going to cover about a thousand years of history today, all right? Uh, pack your lunch, all right? Because it's, it's going to be, no, I, I actually did it in a shorter amount of time last service, so you're okay. But I'm going to cover a thousand years of history. And so we're going to break this thousand years down into three parts, all right? The first part is the king dies. The second part is the king disappears. And then the last part is the king arrives. All right. Are you with me? Are you ready? All right. Here we go. First uh, Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to look at the king dies uh, beginning of verse one. This is the word of God. Amen? Amen. David assembled all the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of the divisions in the king's service, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and the cattle of the king and his sons, along with the court officials, the fighting men, and all the best soldiers. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house of a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and as a footstool for our God. I had made preparations to build, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now stop right there for just a minute. I want you to get the picture. Here is David. He is an old man now. He is approaching death. In fact, in verse 2, it, it makes uh, clear that he stands to his feet to address the crowd. You can imagine him struggling to stand to his feet. He's old, he's tired, he's worn out. This is taking all of his strength. 
And he gathers all of his leaders uh, together. Look at it, the officials, the commanders, the soldiers, the stewards of all the king's property. If you can imagine a State of the Union address, then that's really what's happening here. All the leaders, but he's addressing through them the whole nation. And he's reminding them of what God put on his heart. He said, I have had in my heart to build a temple to the Lord, a place for the Ark of the Covenant to rest and a footstool to our God. He really wanted this to be his legacy. David's lasting legacy was a great temple to God. He had uh, purchased the threshing floor upon which this temple would be built. He had gathered the materials and the resources. He had drafted the plans. And he was ready to, to make this his final act as king. But he said, God told him, no. God told him, no, David, you are a man of war. I don't want my house to be built by a man of war. It'll be a man of peace that will do that. Now, I don't know how... how how you think David felt about that, but I just imagine that David was probably pretty disappointed. I mean, after all, he had done so much to defeat the enemies of Israel, to establish the borders of Israel, to, to install the worship of, of God as center in Israel and to make Jerusalem its capital. He had done all these great things and he just wanted this last piece to be his legacy and God said no. I don't know if you've ever had a dream that God said no to. Probably have. Maybe there was a relationship you really wanted to work out and God said no, right? Or I really wanted to get into this school, but God said no. Or I wanted this business to really work and be great, but it, it failed. God said no. Listen, just like a loving father, sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says wait. And then sometimes God says no. And it's the no that's the hardest part, right? I mean, we love the yeses, the waits we can tolerate, but the no's are hard for us. And it's easy to get disappointed, to get discouraged, and even to get angry with God. God, why can't I have this one thing? God, why won't you give this to me? But you notice here, David does not go there. David does not get angry with God. In fact, he, he doesn't fixate on the no. David fixates on all the yeses that God has given him. Look at verse four. It says, yet, notice he just said, God told me no. In verse four, yet the Lord God of Israel chose me out of all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and from the house of Judah, my father's family. And from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And out, and out of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his kingdom forever if he perseveres in keeping my commands and my ordinances as he is doing uh, today. You know, David kind of takes a trip down memory lane and he says, you know, God said no to this, but God said a lot of yeses in my life. 
You know, God said yes to Judah, the tribe of Judah, because out of Judah would come the king. And then out of Judah, God said yes to my father's house because a king was going to come through there. And then out of my father's house, God chose me to be the king of Israel. And now that I'm stepping down, God's chosen my son Solomon. God's had a lot of yeses in my life. God's spoken a lot of yeses in my life. Who am I to be angry with God when he has given me so much? That's a man who's walked with God. You know, I think David gives us a great recipe for dealing with disappointment. When we're upset because God says no, remember all the yeses. Let me ask you something. Has God said yes to anything uh, for you? Anybody? God said yes to? Yeah, yeah. God's, God said a lot of yeses in your life. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father who does not change like shifting shadows, the Bible says. Every blessing God has poured out on you. God has said yes, yes, yes. Yeah, of course, God has said no to some things, but he said a whole lot of yeses. And here is David, and he's just reflecting on all the yeses of God. And that now God has chosen Solomon to be king. Not only to be king, but to be the one to build the temple. After all, the word Solomon, the name Solomon, is a derivative of the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Solomon was not a man of war like David. He would be a man of peace, a man of, uh, uh, of diplomacy, a builder, an expander. But I want, to, I want you to see something here that you might overlook that's super important, all right? Look up to verse four, all right? Look at verse four. He said, the God of Israel chose me to be king over Israel for how long? Lift up your voice, how long? forever, all right? Underline that, forever. Now run your finger down to verse seven. Look at what it says. I will establish his kingdom, how long? Forever. Underline that right there. Now I want you to write in the margin of your Bible the words Davidic covenant. This is what scholars call the Davidic covenant or the covenant of David. That God promised David that because of David's heart, because God's blessing on his life, that there would be a king sitting on the throne of Israel from David's house forever. In fact, we see this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 16. He said, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, that's a long time. Would you agree with me? Forever is a long time. David, I love you, and there's always going to be a king on the throne of Israel from your house from now on and forever. Now, just keep that in the back of your mind. That's going to come to play in just a minute. Very important, the Davidic covenant. And so uh, David prays in chapter 29, the next chapter. He prays over the nation. He installs Solomon to be king. And then look at chapter 29, verse 26. And David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. The length of his reign over Israel was 40 years. He reigned in Hebron for seven years and in Jerusalem for 33. He died at a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. And his son Solomon became king in his place. The king is dead. Long live the king. We see here in this passage a transfer of power, the passing of the torch from David to Solomon. 
You know, David was God's man in God's time. God used David to establish the nation of Israel, to determine its borders, to push back its enemies, to establish Jerusalem as its capital, to, to, to uh, enthrone worship of God in the heart of the nation. That was all that, that David accomplished through the Lord's direction. Now, was David perfect? Absolutely not. We, we've seen up close and personal the train wrecks that David uh, really brought upon himself. But nevertheless, even though he wasn't perfect, and by the way, no one in this room is perfect either, right? Even in our failures and even in our mistakes, God blessed David and God used David. And we see David's epitaph right here. You know, I wonder what people will say about you when it comes to the end of your life. What will they, somebody's going to take the platform, somebody's going to say a few words about your life. They may have a picture of you on a program or maybe on a screen what are they going to say about your life and how you lived it for God? This is the passing of the torch. So the king dies. But that kind of moves us into the next section, and that is the king disappears. Now, Solomon takes the throne. And under Solomon, we have what is known as the United Kingdom of Israel. We're not talking about the UK today. We're talking about Israel as the United Kingdom. And Solomon presided over a time of peace and prosperity in Israel. Uh, Solomon built the temple, and it was a glorious temple. And people from all over traveled to see the amazing temple that Solomon built. Solomon also prospered the nation. Uh, economic prosperity and growth was his legacy. He, he made all kinds of treaties and, and trade agreements with neighboring countries. Solomon also filled Jerusalem with his wisdom. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs and, and over 1,000 psalms. So Solomon was probably the most prosperous king in Israel. I mean, let me just say, under Solomon, Israel was experiencing its glory days, right? But after Solomon and his glory days took place, Israel tumbled into, I guess, what you could call its dark days because the kingdom split into two. And now you had a northern kingdom and you had a southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was in trouble from the jump, all right? It, it, they, were, uh, they were always led by evil kings. Every single king they had was bad. They had false centers of worship. They had a proliferation of idolatry and immorality. And it became so bad, and they ignored the warning so many times that eventually God used the Assyrians in 722 to sweep down into the north and to devastate the northern kingdom. And those who survived were led off into exile, and the northern kingdom disappeared from the face of the earth, never to return again. The southern kingdom, however retained Jerusalem as its capital, and there was always a king from David's line to rule in the southern kingdom. And they had some good kings like Jehoshaphat and Josiah and others. 
But they also had some bad kings. And so it went back and forth, good and bad, good and bad. But eventually they began to decline spiritually as well. And God brought the Babylonians in 587 BC to conquer the southern kingdom and lead them off into exile. And for 70 years they remained in exile. But God, by his grace, brought a remnant of the southern kingdom back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we see this under the the rule of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and all these kind of great builders that rebuilt the temple, reestablished Jerusalem as a center of Israel. And listen, they were excited to have the temple back, but it wasn't like it was before. You know, it wasn't as grand, wasn't as glorious as the days of Solomon. And you know what was missing when they rebuilt this temple? What was missing was the king. There was no king. In fact, there was this longing for the king. We long for, for a king like David. Remember the promise, the Davidic uh, covenant? We long, they, there was a longing for a king to come, a king in the line of David that would come and rule. And in fact, you can hear in the prophets this longing for a king. Jeremiah says in uh, 23 verse 5, he said, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In other words, Israel's like a dead stump that's been cut down, but God's going to raise up this branch out of this dead stump that's coming from the line of David. The king will come. One day the king is going to come. And the people longed for that day. Isaiah talked about it. In Isaiah uh, chapter 9, he said, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. Listen, and he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. Listen, from now on and forever. See, there it is, that, that promise of a forever king that will come in the line of David. He goes on to say, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So there's this longing for years and for decades and for hundreds of years that people waited and longed and waited and longed that one day God would bring the king to us. And then it happened. The king arrived Listen, a thousand years after the life of David, there came a king. And this king was born, as you would guess it, of the tribe of Judah, the the kingly tribe. He was born, you guessed it, out of the house of David, just as God promised. In fact, he was actually born in Bethlehem, which was a place where David was born, the, the city of David, it's called. This king was celebrated and announced by angels in the sky. This king was worshiped by wise men that traveled from Persia. This king was a long-awaited king. And he preached about a kingdom that would never end. And he demonstrated his kingly authority over death and disease, over the seen natural world and the unseen supernatural world. The king had come. And finally, all of Jerusalem recognized their king when this king rode into Jerusalem 
on a very special day. In fact, Matthew tells us all about it. Matthew 21, this is what we read. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them. And he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spread them on the, on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This event is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, right? This is why we call it Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into uh, Jerusalem. But I don't want you to miss the kingly image. This is all about his kingliness, all right? For example, he comes riding in on a donkey. Why does he come riding in on a donkey? Because that was the mode of transportation of kings and princes, and in fact, in Zechariah 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, daughters of Zion. Shout for triumph, daughters of Jerusalem. That's what they did on the triumphal entry. They're shouting, Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He came just as he was foretold. He's king. Don't miss the palm branches. Why did they wave palm branches? Because palm branches uh, were a part of the, the celebration of a kingly triumphal uh, entry into Jerusalem. In fact, we found some coins minted during back in the Maccabean period that have palm branches on them. It was a sign of nationalistic pride. Palm branches were even, even painted on the inside of the temple. Like we have the, the eagle for our nation, they have palm branches for them. So when they're waving palm branches, they're, they're celebrating and receiving a king. And then, of course, what they said was important. They said, Hosanna, son of David. You know what the word Hosanna means? It means save us. And son of David refers back to the king who will come from the line of David. Save us, O king who comes from David's line. They, they knew exactly who Jesus was. And they celebrated him on that day as he's coming over the Mount of Olives and across the Kindred Valley. They understood who he was. He was the promised king that they've been waiting a thousand years to receive. They knew exactly who Jesus was. The only problem was, get this, he wasn't really the kind of king they wanted. <laughs> yeah, he was their king, but he wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. See, they wanted a military king. They wanted a, a military leader. They wanted a king that would like kick Rome off of them and bring Israel back to a united kingdom, back to a place like Solomon, back to its glory days. And they did not realize that Jesus didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a suffering king. They missed it. You know, there's a, there's a commercial, I think it's for the University of Phoenix or some place advertising graduate programs. And there's, in this commercial, this guy is seeing all these signs, you know, and this, this man comes up to him and goes, the signs are all around us. I don't know if you remember that commercial. But that, that's really what could be said about the triumphal entry. The signs were all around them that Jesus came as a suffering king. You say, well, what kind of signs? Well, we know from historians that 
the week before the Passover, a trumpeter would stand on the corner of the temple and he would blow the trumpet or blow the shofar. And that was a sign for all the people to gather their sacrificial lambs that they would offer on the Passover. And I can just imagine as Jesus is coming over the Mount of Olives with all the crowd celebrating him, the trumpeter blasts his horn. Here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives. The next time he appears, he's on the Temple Mount. And so many believe that he went through the Eastern Gate. That would be very significant if Jesus had entered the Eastern Gate. Why? Because a high priest on the, on the Passover would, would be purified ceremonially on the Mount of Olives. And he would cross the Kindred Valley and he would go in through the Eastern Gate. Today, the Eastern Gate is sealed shut in Jerusalem. Because they know the Messiah was prophesied to come through there. And here comes Jesus through the eastern gate. Here comes Jesus, our high priest, who offers up once and for all a sacrifice for our sin. But there was another sign. And that sign happened just a few days later on that Thursday night when Jesus met in an upper room with his disciples. And Jesus took the bread, and if you'll take the bread out, he took a bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is broken for you. This bread represents my body. And then as often as you eat this bread, you remember my sacrifice for you. And that night they ate the bread together. And then Jesus took the cup he said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. Not just the covenant of David, not the old covenant of Moses, a new covenant that I make to you. And all who come to me find forgiveness from their sins through my blood and my sacrifice. And they drank it together. After the upper room, Jesus led them down some steps out the water gate and across the Kindred Valley up to the lower end of the Mount of Olives to a private garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus would pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Very shortly thereafter, soldiers would come and arrest Jesus. And they would drag him through illegitimate trials in the middle of the night. And then they began to mock and ridicule the king. The soldiers took him and beat him, pulling out his beard, lashing him in the back, scourging him. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they put a robe on him and a scepter in his hand and a crown of thorns on his head. And they bowed down and said, hail king of the Jews. What a joke you are. They drug him before Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you really a king? And Jesus said, it is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world And then they led him away to be crucified in a place called the Skull 
a place Golgotha, where they nailed him to a cross, suspending him between heaven and earth. And as people ridiculed him and mocked him, they placed a placard above his head that said, King of the Jews. They crucified their king. They crucified the king of glory. See, there's a reason why Jesus came this way. Because the Bible tells us that we're separated from God because of our sin. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us, the Bible says, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, that is on Jesus, all of our sin. See, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus came as a suffering king to go to a cross. And on that cross, all of your sin was put on the back of Jesus and he died in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored, so that you could be reconciled back to God. Now, spoiler alert, he's not gonna stay dead, right? We're gonna get to that next week. But this king who came in obscurity is one one day gonna come in majesty. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, the, The king that came on a donkey one day is gonna come on a white horse of great power. The king that came as a suffering king one day will come as a conquering king. But that is a day that we look forward to. But on this day, as we think about the triumphal entry of Jesus, we have to understand that on that day there were two crowds. There was a crowd who celebrated Jesus as king. They were excited about it. Oh, yeah, we're all about Jesus. We love Jesus. They celebrated. They waved their hands. They waved their palm branches. They celebrated Jesus as king as long as he was the kind of king they wanted. As long as he made their life better, as long as he did what they wanted, then they would readily accept him as their king. You know, there are people like that today. They love Jesus. They'll raise their hands. They'll come to church. They'll say, oh, man, I love Jesus. As long as he tells me yes to every prayer. As long as my life is smooth and and I'm happy, then I'm happy to follow Jesus. But if it requires suffering, if it requires sacrifice, if it requires self-denial, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, there were those that day that celebrated Jesus King. But there was another group that submitted to Jesus as King. They saw him as a promised king who would come and take away our sin. And they made a decision to submit all that they are to King Jesus. And listen, that's the kind of person God's looking for today. Not someone that celebrates in a worship service, but someone who submits to King Jesus Monday through Saturday, every day to say, Lord Jesus, you are my king. You died in my place. You rose again from the grave. You're my hope and my joy. And I am your disciple. And I choose to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you wherever you lead. All that I have, King Jesus is yours. All that I hope for, King Jesus is yours. I am your servant and you are my king. Can you say that? Because that's why he came, to call out those out of the crowd that would follow him. 
Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? As we celebrate this Palm Sunday and we put ourselves in that crowd, which one are you? One who just celebrates Jesus, but rejects his leadership in your life during the week? Or are you one that submits to Jesus in every area of your life? Maybe this morning you need to submit some things to King Jesus. Maybe he needs to have rule and reign over your relationships. Maybe he needs to have rule and reign over your business or over your pocketbook or over your time. Maybe King Jesus wants to rule and reign in every area of your life. Maybe that secret part of your life that you've been pushing him away, even there, King Jesus wants to rule and reign there. Would you submit to him? King Jesus, we worship you today. We thank you that you are the promised king from the line of David. That you came as our king, but as our suffering king. And Lord, we know you're coming soon again as our conquering king. But until then, Lord, we want to submit to you. We submit to you today as the king of our life, the ruler of our life, every area of our life submitted to you, Jesus. Rule over it all. We worship you now in Jesus' name.